Today on the History Factory Podcast, basketball, history, diplomacy, with Dr. Lindsay Sarah Krasnow. I'm Jason Dressel, and welcome to the History Factory Podcast, the podcast at the intersection of business and history, basketball, history, and diplomacy. Which one of these seems to be an outlier? Well, as we're about to learn, none of them. Dr. Lindsay Sarah Krasnoff, a sports diplomacy expert, consultant, writer, and historian who works at the intersection of sports, communications, and diplomacy, is here to talk about, among other things, her new book, Basketball Empire, France and the Making of a Global NBA and WNBA. The WNBA season just ended. The 2023-24 NBA basketball season just began this week. And if you're not a close follower of the NBA, you may not know that this season, the league has a rookie who is arguably the biggest thing since LeBron James entered the league 20 years ago. Victor Wimbanyama, or Wimby, is playing for the San Antonio Spurs. He is listed as seven foot three, which means he is the tallest player in the league, although I think there are pl other players who are seven three. But what makes Wimby, a potentially once-in-a-generation player, is that he combines that height with an insane eight-foot wingspan and a skill set and level of mobility that is just absolutely not normal. He can play out on the perimeter, he can shoot threes, he can run the court, and with that height and wingspan, he can block and alter shots and cover ground and make steals. Uh, as LeBron James himself was quoted as saying, quote, Everybody has been a unicorn over the last few years, but he's more like an alien. No one has ever seen anyone as tall as he is, but as fluid and as graceful. Wimby, I think he's 18 years old. He may be 19 now. He is also French, which brings us to the topic at hand on today's History Factory podcast. Now, I don't know about you, but when I think about French influence on American culture, sports is not the first thing that comes to mind. I think of art food, fashion, literature, theater. Uh, you know, I think about uh, Americans like the lost generation in Paris in the 1920s, Hemingway, Gertrude Stein and F. Scott Fitzgerald, or, you know, African-American artists in Paris in, you know, after World War II, uh, you know, the jazz movement. But I don't think about sports. But in fact, Victor Wimbanyama is just the most recent French import and basketball player specifically. And France and the United States have this really long shared history of basketball. So here to share more is Dr. Lindsay Sarah Krasnoff. As I said before, she is a sports diplomacy expert. And uh, she is also co-director of the Basketball Diplomacy in Africa Project. She is author of The Making of Le Bleu, Sport in France, 1958 to 2010, Views from the Embassy, and she is a contributing writer on global sports for CNN International, Washington Post, The Athletic, Vice Sports, Sporting News, The New Yorker, and many more. And she's also um, a veteran of the U.S. Department of State's Bureau of Public Affairs Office of the Historian. And she's a research associate at the Center for International Studies and Diplomacy at the University of London and an adjunct lecturer with New York University's Tisch Institute for Global Sport. And her latest book is Basketball Empire, France, and the Making of a Global NBA and WNBA. So without further ado, please welcome Dr. Lindsay Sarah Krasnoff. Lindsay, welcome to the History Factory podcast. 
Thanks so much Thank for joining so us much. today. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Well, first of all, congratulations on on the book. Um, it's a uh, it's a it's a really uh, interesting interesting topic and, and very timely as we'll as we'll talk about. Um, but first, I'm just dying to ask this question because you and I have have met before in the past and, and have spoken, and um, we talked about maybe some some other topics that were a little more adjacent to uh, to really your um, sort of core core passion and and which is captured so well and, and encapsulated in in this new book. Um, but let's kind of start with that. You know, you you bring together this really interesting mix of of history and communications and diplomacy and sports, and that's not a, a sort of common career path. So I'm just curious, you know, what what kind of took you on that journey, and and how have you kind of brought together these interesting um, sort of uh, practice areas, if you will, of, of diplomacy and history and communications and sports? It's a great starting point, and. You know, I wish I could say it is all part of a very well thought out and executed plan, but it is totally not the case at all. More, it's an it's an accumulation of my varied work and um, personal interests that have happened to span academia, government, the media, and the private sector, as well as spanning geographic regions. Um, although. My career has gone between academia, working for the U.S. government as a historian with the U.S. Department of State, writing pieces for the media, uh, teaching, um, and then also in the private sector. You know, there's kind of two guiding threads that help to tie it all together. The first is just, you know, I have always firmly believe that a better understanding of the past helps us not just individually, but collectively as a society today whether it is thinking about issues, things in the news, or our own work and institutions. And it also helps to provide inspiration for the future. The second guiding thread um, that's kind of stitched all of this together is that, for me, sports have long been a prism to engage with others um, and to look at societies and to kind of think and interact with people regardless of uh, divides or a geographic locale because not only does it reflect our societies, but a sport is also a kind of a universal language. And a lot of this is formed by the fact that I grew up outside of Boston, Massachusetts, around the town of Concord, uh, which is where the first shots, in theory, were you know shot uh, sounded uh, that began the American War for Independence and. You know, growing up, the history was always around us. April 19th was always a holiday, and you'd go to the Old North Bridge in Concord, watch the reenactment. Um, volunteers would dress up as the Minutemen. Volunteers would dress up as the, you know, the British soldiers in their red coats. Uh, and you, I still can recall, even in Aprils, when I was in college and I'd be home uh, for whatever reason during that period of time, being woken up early in the morning by the sound of fife and drums as the local Minutemen began their march to the old North Bridge in Concord. Um, so, you know, that that has kind of been that one strand that helps to shape it. Also, growing up in that region, uh, I've long, you know, sports has long been a part of the, the social fabric, although we're very much part of Red Sox Nation. I grew up at a time before they won anything. And it was a long time. But, you know, it's a common point of bonding with everyone, right? How about those socks? Every spring, there was a lot of hope. 
which was dashed by every August as the late days of summer made it clear that this was, in fact, not our year after all. Um, and, you know, I went to Boston Bruin games with my grandfather or my father and would ask questions in addition to what the heck is the offensive rule? Um, but, you know, why do people talk differently than we do? I don't have this stereotypical Boston accent, although I can break it out on demand. Um, you know, uh, why are people drinking tall beers out of brown paper bags? Where are all the other women and girls? So I think that these early formative experiences, although I didn't really connect them to anything at the time, I think they helped to inform kind of my my, my outlook towards both my career and the roles that I think both history and sport play today. Mm. Well, for, first, I'll share that. That's a wicked smart answer. Um, but, uh, you know, and it's interesting how you point that out, that sports is this kind of communal language. Um, and it's interesting because on the surface, um, you know, when you think about history and communications and diplomacy, those all those all make sense. And, and the sports ones definitely feels like the, the one that is not like all the others. Um, but how you you frame that up is 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 really interesting. How did if, if I may just kind of dig in more on that just quickly, how how did the sports piece kind of come about though in a way that you actually saw a way to to act act upon it, if that makes sense? Yes, definitely makes sense. At some point when I was in my undergraduate uh, college career, I had the epiphany that I wanted to be a sports journalist. Mm. I can't remember exactly where this sprung from, mm. um, but I wanted to be a sports journalist. And so I applied and attended graduate school at uh, New York University uh, to do just that. I enrolled in a journalism program. Uh, with a sports media uh, focus, but at the same time, I did a joint degree in French studies, kind of combining the passion um, that, or the curiosity, I should say, that uh, first developed during my study abroad in France um, into a, you know, my graduate education. And in order to get out of <laughs> that that degree program, I had to write about something uh, kind of journalistic, investigative, dealing with sports and something dealing with France. And at the time, it was after France won the FIFA World Cup at the first time and the European Championship back-to-back. My advisor, his daughters were heavily involved in the youth soccer circuit uh, in Boston. And as we were you know, uh, tossing around ideas of you know, what it was that I could possibly you know, focus on for this project, he said, well, but we know what youth soccer is like here in the U.S. What is it like in France? How do they mm. make Les Blue? And so that kind of was the starting point of a lot. What it, so, so this is fun. This will kind of enter us into the, the conversation that sort of leads up to, to some of the themes that you talk about in, in the new book. But um, I, I was going to ask, why are you a Francophile? But you, I think you already already kind of inferred, <laughs> uh, like, like a lot of us, um, you know, you, you go somewhere in, in, in college and you kind of get indoctrinated into the culture and that can create sort of a, a, a lifelong love affair. Um, but what did you find? And I guess, you know, well, those of us, you know, here in the States who love sports, those of us certainly who now have, you know, kids like myself who are involved in youth sports, um, you know, see what that's like, both from a positive standpoint and sometimes a, a not so positive standpoint. But how, how would you just generally sort of characterize how sports culture 
is different in Europe from your experience um, and maybe specifically in, in, in France? Specifically with relation to France, it has long been argued, and I would tend to agree that this remains the case even today, that France lacks a sports culture in terms mm. of the, the way we would think about it in the United States or Canada or Britain or Germany or Australia. Um, that isn't to say that the French do not enjoy sports or that they don't play them and engage them. They do, and they have for you know centuries. Uh, it's just that sport is not part of kind of the the everyday cultural rung, or it is not considered important enough by certain opinion-making elites to be uh, integrated into that those particular, uh, perhaps more um, high, higher level cultural milieus um, than it is in other countries. And so that is one of the, the struggles that many athletes in France, even today, still face, uh, mm. that that you know, if they introduce themselves as a, especially their elite level athletes, um, that in some quarters that is looked down upon, or you know, as something more frivolous and not, not perhaps as uh, much of a strong contribution to society as other professional endeavors. There's a really a few really great examples of this, both in 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 the book as well as on an adjacent project uh, that I work on called France and Us which features the French and American relationship through sport, past, present, and the next generation beyond basketball. Obviously, there's a lot of basketball there, but showing the larger the larger history across all sporting disciplines between the two countries, which is much deeper and longer, and I think stronger than many people realize. Yeah, exactly. And, and we're going to get into that. But I think it's interesting how you point out that sports and how it's perceived in sort of society and popular culture in France is sort of distinctly different than many of the other European countries. Um, how, how would you kind of characterize that compared to how sports crazy we all are here in the United States? Do you see that as a kind of similar phenomena, obviously with, uh, with football aka soccer um it's crazy you know in 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 a number of countries around the world not just obviously in europe um but do you see the united states being sort of uniquely different than some of these other um countries and cultures with respect to our um relationship healthy or otherwise with sports yes i do think that the united states is rather unique in its relationship with sports and sports culture as compared to uh some other countries certainly in europe um, and specifically with france in mind thinking of that kind of transatlantic comparison i would suggest that one of the key differences between a french sports culture or you know what 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 there is of one um or the lack of regard for one and that in the united states is that you think about what are the main sports and teams that drive the sports culture in the U.S. today or even past, right? It's professional sports and NCAA university level sports, but particularly those that generate lots of viewership, lots of consumer dollars, lots of alumni booster dollars. And a lot of that relates to the fact that when you think of most, pretty much all of the professional teams throughout American sports across any of the sporting disciplines 
they began life as for-profit enterprises, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so part so part of kind of that business, um, uh, you know, entertainment and leisure as business uh, module. In France and other parts of Europe, a lot of what are today their professional sports clubs, not all, but many of them began life as, um, you know, local town or community clubs, um, mm-hmm. usually multi-sport clubs, right? So when you look at PSG, Paris Saint-Germain, uh, perhaps most well-known is its football soccer team, but there are other, you know, it has a very strong handball team. And so originally these clubs began life um, in service of the community as sports associations, right, for the benefit of all, not necessarily to make money. There are obviously a few exceptions there. Within France, the professionalization of sports has been significantly, I think, um, slower than many Americans or um, those outside of France might realize, um, long hindered by the kind of values and valeurs um, associated with the Olympic movement, which was founded by French aristocrat Pierre de Coubertin that prized and idealized the status of the amateur athlete as part of the engaging in sport for its moral and ethical values, um, and that getting paid to do so was kind of beneath the whole point. Um, although we see... Yeah, that's, certain, pretty, that's pretty discordant with our sports culture here. <laughs> yeah, very much. And so I think that helps to um, at least reframe a little bit how how we should be thinking about the 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 comparison uh, and contrast of the two different different um, entities. Yeah, interesting. Um, so, so let's talk about basketball. Um, my my favorite sport as a as a native of, of Chapel Hill, North Carolina, uh, and someone who who uh, grew up as an '80s kid. Um, you know, basketball has has become such a you know American export, and and you know probably when when you and I were growing up, Lindsay, when we thought about sort of the kind of preeminent truly global sport it probably was football and and basketball has i don't know if it's you, you may have an opinion on this i i don't have an opinion on whether basketball has has been able to uh, to ellipse uh, uh football but it, it has truly become a, an incredibly uh global sport and uh i think in many ways sort of the popular lexicon of that is that you know the the influence of the 1992 dream team and michael jordan over the course of the the 90s were were a big sort of influence on that um but as your as your book explores um obviously you know there and it, it had been an olympic sport for a long time so basketball has been an international sport for a very long time um but how have you seen that sort of um sort of uh, uh globalization of of, of basketball specifically? That's a great question because I think one of today when we think about globalization of basketball, I think so many people, um, uh, you know, think instantly of the NBA as kind of the marquee brand and style that's out there, uh, you know, with, with due rights. But I would argue that when you look at the history of the sport itself, the NBA has been so successful in part globally because it is not building from scratch. 
It was going into markets where there already existed an indigenous basketball culture, mostly. When you look at the the growth and implementation of basketball, it was invented by a Canadian in Massachusetts in 1891. Within two years, the first um, uh, basketball games were being played overseas in Paris, actually. Paris was the uh, first (laughs) place on European soil to, to start playing basketball. Within the next several years, so before the turn of the 20th century, it was being played in certain port towns in China, in Australia, in Brazil, um, in other parts of Western Europe, including Britain, uh, Portugal, uh, Spain. So um, there, there is very clearly an early exportation due to the YMC educators who brought the game of basketball, the, uh, you know, the, the phrase uh, that one of my colleagues, uh, Christelle Bertho, has come up with, you know, that they left with the 13 rules of basketball in their suitcases and helped to plant the seeds for a global game. Um, And, you know, when we look at the evolution of the game, in many countries, it had very little to do with its American counterparts, uh, you know, until at different points in time in different parts of the world based on trajectory of two world wars, Cold War, uh, and so many other things. Um, But when you look at who's playing basketball around the globe by the 1930s, it's being played across all of the continents. Maybe not uh, to the same degree of depth and visibility and popularity as football. Uh, and I would argue that's still the case today, although basketball has been making significant gains um, in the past, say, 20, 30 years. Uh, it still, I do not think, uh, has overtaken the roi du sport, the king of sports, football. Uh, but, you know, that's a challenged question. Can basketball, it, you know, overtake in the 21st century? And if you're to look at how the sports are used and engaged in, I would put forward the, the, the provocative question, is basketball perhaps ideally primed uh, to be the sport within the sports diplomacy metric of the 21st century? Yeah, and it's interesting because you know both of those sports, by their nature, they're very cost efficient to be able to to play. And I suspect that that has been part of the reason why those two sports have been so um, effective at being able to 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 grow and spread because um, they're able to to defy a lot of maybe socioeconomic barriers that other sports may have. Um, you know, as, as I've thought about, you know, why is it that, that basketball has been a easier sport to, to export, if you will, than American football or uh, baseball? You know, it's, some of it is just like it's it's not as complicated. It doesn't require as much equipment. It, it doesn't necessarily require as much space. Um, you know, some of those other other games are maybe not as immediately transferable. Um, for all those reasons, just in terms of the rules and the uh, kind of infrastructure that you need to be able to play them, it's it's hard to just get a, a crew together to you know play uh, play real you know baseball or football, right? So, um, so what kind of digging into to to, to the, the book, it, it specifically focuses on this relationship between the United States and France, really kind of through the lens of basketball. So, without giving giving up too much because we want people to be inspired here from, from this conversation to, to delve in more and to buy the book, uh, which is readily available. And we'll make sure to, to, to link to that um, in the notes, but um, you know, what is kind of the thesis of the book and, you know, how did 
um, how did the United States and, and, and how did the kind of basketball worlds of, of the United States and France sort of affect, you know, and how has it continued to affect sort of the broader cultural and political and kind of socioeconomic factors between the two countries? So the, the main guiding question um, throughout the entire book is pretty much how and why did France become a major pipeline of talent into the NBA, WNBA, and NCAA? Uh, when you look at um, the historic figures into the NBA, outside of North America, no other country has sent more players to the NBA all time than France, mm. which is kind of surprising when you think about it. You'd usually think, uh, you know, maybe it's Serbia or Spain. It is France. Um, and so, you know, well, how and why did that happen is kind of what the book is about. Um, and at its heart, um, a large part of the answer rests on the nature of different types of sports diplomacy. So people to people engagements and exchanging of culture um, technique. So kind of the tactical sides, as well as general knowledge um, through the game of basketball and it's a story that spans um, the, the Atlantic uh, from France to the U.S. and vice versa, as well as the French Antilles, uh, especially Guadeloupe and Martinique have played a very uh, outsized role in front, the history of French basketball, as well as Francophone Africa. So kind of the colonial, uh, the legacies of France's colonial era as complicated, complex and negative as those legacies are. Um, they are without without you know the Antilles, without Francophone Africa, France is not a, you know, it it's not, it doesn't have its basketball empire. Um, it it was significantly enriched by those flows of uh, players and coaches and technicians into and out of French hard courts, as well as those from other parts of Europe too. You know, that 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 should be said, but the book does focus on the transatlantic and the African side. How, so are most of these players coming directly from France or are they coming from other areas of the world? I mean, one of the things that I think of there is just that sort of kind of irony, if you will, between, to your point, France being the the greatest kind of resource for NBA imports and that conflicting with your, your point that in, in French society, sports writ large is um not as um elevated or as um held up on that same pedestal as it is in even other european countries like you know great britain or or spain or or italy yeah so you know it, it gets into different eras of flow so the the more historic part of the book say up through the year 2000 looks at first the flows of americans individuals who went to france um and wound up playing basketball uh, to mm. quote one who whose quote gives the title to chapter one, I didn't go to France to play basketball. Um, you know, that was something that found them when they were there. Um, or basketball was the tool that they used to get to France, to go and experience and live a different part of the world, to get outside of their bubble in the United States. And part of this kind of early, early flow of players, particularly after 1968, when French rules expanded to allow more foreigners on French teams mm. instead of just one foreigner, too. Um, a mm. lot of those mm. uh, positions were filled by Americans and particularly African-Americans who 
you know, were curious about the world, were curious about France, had heard that it was a relatively colorblind society, um, even though we know in reality that was not the case. Um, the, you know, there were different types of uh, discriminations, uh, but uh, those who I spoke to for the book emphasized that particularly in the 60s and 70s and early 1980s, having that American passport was the main prism through which the French would see you. They wouldn't, obviously they would see your skin color, but it, they, it was that American passport, that national identity, which was more uh, of a dictation of how they would treat you. And they were, they told me they were treated very warmly and very well. Obviously there are exceptions to the rule, but um, that, you know, that is one part of the story. And then starting in 1984, you have more French, you start to have French players coming to play in the NCAA, particularly female players who began to take advantage of Title IX basketball scholarships. Very interesting. Have there been some specific sort of things about the relationship between the United States and France that have really been sort of influenced by this basketball kind of sort of infrastructure that the two countries have? Yeah, you know, I think it's an interesting example because we, in popular culture and history, we know a lot about French anti-Americanism, even though it's cyclical, or American Francophobia, again, cyclical throughout time, Mm -hmm. Uh, whether it's in the diplomatic relationship, whether it's culturally, remember Freedom Fries, um, you know, a while back. Uh, But, you know, what we've, find that drives a lot of the basketball story is both a fascination and intrigue with the other to the point where they want to go and experience it themselves. They don't necessarily love everything about that experience um, when they're, you know, engaged in it. Um, The thing I heard most in terms of what French women and men miss most about home during their, you know, U.S. hoop dreams experience was the food. I'm not surprised. Uh, But, you know, so things like that. Uh, And, uh, you know, so fascination of the other has driven a lot of that story. And I think that all comes down to kind of that that unique French-American relationship that's propelled by, uh, you know, interest and curiosity as much as it can also be driven by repulsion and disdain. Um, So it's a really interesting, interesting scenario. I do have to say that, you know, there are during my my field work for for the book, which does use media archives, um, uh, some government archives as well, but it's really predicated on oral history interviews and with more recent players, uh, media interviews. Um, you know, the, so it's really a uh, story as told through the you know from the bottom up rather than the top down archives wise as we usually. Uh, speak as historians. Um, but so it's really driven by that personal interaction and you don't see the same sorts of cycles of disdain and fascination that you see in other cultural, diplomatic, business, economic um, trajectories uh, between French and Americans. What, what were some of the biggest surprises you may have uh, had during the the, the research process? There's two really great ones that immediately come to mind. First, how 
when you're living abroad and speaking a different language, you take on the physical mannerisms of that language. I noticed this particularly with um, uh, two of the earlier uh, former players who I in- interviewed, uh, the American Bill Kane, uh, who now has French citizenship, as well as the American Henry Field, who uh, Fields, despite living in France full time since 1960, still retains his U.S. citizenship, as far as I know. Um, but you know how when they would arrive at the cafe or the meeting place where we were going to do our oral history interview, you know, they, they were indistinguishable from any of the other people, French people out on the streets. They sat in those tiny little cane uh, cafe chairs, just as any other French person does, even though they were perhaps quite a bit taller than your average person on the street in Paris. But once they switched to English, because I did try to interview particularly those in English, they started to take up more physical space and their gestures would very much reflect the Americanisms that were coming back to them as they were starting to relive their story in English. Um, so yeah. that that was super interesting to note. And the, you know, the French who I interviewed here in the U.S., um, regardless of whether they were speaking in English or French, you know, would still have a few of the kind of physical mannerisms of when you speak in French, but by and large, all English expressions or, you know, a few of the hand gestures. So that was um, something kind of surprising and unexpected as part of the research process. I think the other thing I was surprised that, that really kind of shown through as part of that research was just what a vastly different um, story I was unearthing by speaking to those who lived through it versus if I were to just have gone from what was in the media accounts or in the archives or um, the official publications of the Federation and so forth, um, that it really kind of illustrated it and brought it to life. And that as much as players were inspired by role models, whether it was Bill Russell, who plays an outsized role in the first half of the book, um, or Michael Jordan, Magic Johnson, Kobe Bryant, Tony Parker, it was still the individual experiences and relationships with, for the French players with Americans, or the American players with the French counterparts that really helped to shape and guide their own trajectory and allowed them to pursue their passion to some of the highest levels. Um, and so the importance of the role of the individual was something I was most surprised uh, to learn as a process of this. Mm. And not kind of the like the big star individual that we all see on TV, but the relatable, that individual who you come into contact with on an everyday basis. Mm, yeah. Well, it's it's a really interesting story. And just, you know, our, our conversation is just like such a small kind of proof point for why the, I mean, when you look at the NBA right now, it's like you look at the top 10 best players in the NBA. And I think there's maybe only one of them is actually a, a, a North American, right? Um, it's just, it's astonishing how truly um, international uh, the game has become and, and the NBA um, itself. Um, more broadly, just, you know, considering obviously your, your area of expertise, um, there's been, you know, some pretty dramatic changes in sports, both 
globally as well as uh, here in the United States, you know, with college sports, as we were kind of talking about just sort of the, the ethos of sports in the United States and American culture, um, you know, NIL, name, image, likeness is obviously this, this huge, huge game changer uh, for for college athletics and, and how all that's going to play out, particularly, obviously, in the big money sports of, of football and basketball. Um, and then there's this this other kind of major theme that, of course, has been getting a tremendous amount of attention this year, particularly because of everything that happened uh, with professional golf. And and that's this concept of, of sports washing. Um, but that seems to so perfectly align with your, you know, sort of study and interest of sports and diplomacy. So I'm just curious on sort of what your kind of take is on that. Um, you know, obviously Saudi Arabia is getting a tremendous amount of attention, uh, for the, the moves that they're making. And I'm just curious what your kind of take is on this concept. And, you know, uh, do you see other countries maybe trying to adopt this kind of strategy of using sort of sports as cultural and economic currency to, to advance their agendas? Yeah, that's a great question, particularly given the phrase sports washing, which, uh, you know, when you look at who's been using sports for various different uses, whether for positive, um, more altruistic reasons globally, or for very, um, uh, less idealistic, more self-involved, um, uh, purposes such as bolstering uh, uh, bolstering attention away from certain uh, human rights violations or certain policies or ideologies that are far more restrictive than those enshrined ideally in the Olympic movement or other ethos of the international sports movement. Um, everyone's used sports in some way, shape or form as far back as the rise of modern sports. And you can go back to uh, the ancient, uh, the ancient Greeks as well. Um, keeping the focus on on the present day, I'm not a particular fan of the term sports washing because it, depending upon who's using it, it can it can perhaps cross over into the realms of um, a anti-eastern or non-western bias, right? Um, and we do see a lot of. Uh, popular accounts using sports washing and pointing fingers at Saudi Arabia, at Qatar, who both, you know, very much have human rights issues, um, and, uh, among other things um, that that um, the sports uh, scene is um, uh, helping to eliminate. But, you know, others have accused countries like Rwanda of sports washing, of of China and so many other regimes, but these are all Westerners who are, you know, saying that. Um, I am sure that if people in other parts of the world were to look at, um, say, the United States's upcoming um, global mega events um, tour de force as host for FIFA 2026, where it's co-hosting for the LA Games in 2028 for um, the Rugby World Cups uh, thereafter and so forth, um, and given the decline in certain human rights or civil rights here in this country, they could perhaps say the same thing. Um, so I think sports washing is kind of like beauty in the eye of the beholder, right? Mm. So that's why I tend to not use that particular phrase. Um, although, you know, I think when you look at 
what the Saudi Arabian government officials have been saying about their use of sport recently, that it is to build their kind of economic basis for when the oil money dries up. Um, so they're not necessarily, as they explain it, they're not doing so to obscure uh, uh, or elevate their brand, but really to kind of lay the um, the groundwork for continuing the national economy. Um, you know, is that, can that really be seen in the same lights as sports washing, which kind of indicates that you're trying to rinse from public um, conception your transgressions? Uh, so, so that is a question um, that I, you know, when I look at how, for example, Qatar has engaged in sports diplomacy, I don't necessarily agree with it, but the Qataris, I think, have done it very smartly. When you think of 20 years ago, how much did the average person know about Qatar, let alone where in the world it really was? Uh, today, especially after hosting FIFA World Cup 2022, but also all their other investments in the global sports industry, particularly on the business side, many, you know, most people now at least know something of Qatar. And, you know, so that is kind of a smart use of sport, whether it is for for ill or for for better, you know. Well, and I think to, to bring our conversation sort of Full circle. Um, what a and what a wonderful way to to end a great conversation. It's what you speak of there is really a reflection of the importance and popularity of sport to uh, to humanity. Um, so it's natural that it gets you know um, whether it's uh, uh, altruistically to your point or or maybe you know, nefariously it makes sense why sports is essentially leveraged as currency because it is so important to, to so many people and so many different cultures around the world. Mm-hmm. For sure. Yeah. Well, um, Lindsay, a fun conversation. Um, congratulations on, on the book again. Um, we're having this conversation sort of on the, on the eve of, of the new NBA season. And of course the upcoming uh, debut of uh, the new French phenom, uh, Victor Wembanyama, who is anticipated to uh, to be the uh, the the next the next great, um, and so of course uh, uh, I have to ask. Um, so how how serendipitous is the timing of this book with uh, with uh, with the, uh, the the dawn of the uh, of the Wembanyama era? So this book has been a long time in the making. I first started doing the research in 2015. And it had to be stopped and started at several points over the ensuing years. Uh, in 2020, I broadened it to include not just the African dimension uh, to the extent that I could, but also women's basketball to tell a more holistic story. I signed my publishing contract, I think, a week or two before Mets 92 and Victor Mambayama went to Las Vegas in October 2022 for their Um, you know, special showcase against the G League Ignite. And, you know, that's when Wambanyama Mania began to take off. And it hasn't really subsided since. So I'm pretty sure my publisher is patting themselves on the back for the the serendipity of the timing. I know it certainly has provided a a new and more unique window of opportunity to to, um, talk about uh, the topics that the the book brings up, particularly in an American market, um, 
But, you know, it also, I think, helps to underscore kind of one of the other subtexts of basketball empire, that it's it's about much more than what happens on the court in the end of the day. It is, a, you know, a chronicle of what the experience of being overseas or being abroad is like and how it allows you to not just learn about others and other things around you, but also to learn more about yourself. Um, and your abilities, your capabilities, and what you're able to do, and then to contribute back. Well, great timing, then, and uh, congratulations to you and your publisher. Um, but certainly, certainly uh, re- reaffirms the relevance of of uh, and timeliness of, of the topic in the book. So, Lindsay, again, thanks so much for joining us. Great conversation, and uh, best of luck with best of luck with the book. Thanks so much for having me. Great conversation with Dr. Lindsay Sarah Krasnoff. If you are interested in purchasing her new book, you can buy it directly from the publisher's website and receive a 20% discount. Look for that information in the show notes, as well as a few other links to learn more about Lindsay's work and some of the topics that we covered. Thanks again to Lindsay for joining. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the History Factory Podcast. I'm Jason Dressel. Be well. Be well.